The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Good morning and welcome to Autism Live and to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. I'm Shannon Penrod and my better half, Nancy Allspot Jackson, is not with us today because she is still on vacacione and we want her to take good vacacione. So she will, I think, be back with us next week. But I'm here with you and I'm so excited to be with you here this morning. First of all, we're saying good morning to Christina and to Amanda. We're so happy that you guys are here with us. And for those of you who are like, why didn't I get a shout out? Let me just tell you, because if you will send us a message, I love to play the romper room lady and say, I see so-and-so and I see so-and-so. Uh, so uh, the way that we know that you're here is if you're watching us live, we are on YouTube, we are on Facebook, we are on Twitter and Periscope right now live. And on any of those platforms, you can just write in and say hello, and I will try to give as many shout outs as I possibly can, because we're thrilled that you're here with us and watching us live. That's also a space where you can be writing in your questions, your comments, your concerns, whatever, whatever you got going on. This is a safe space where you can say whatever you have going on. Uh, we, we, the whole show is meant to be interactive. It's our favorite part. Let's just say that. It's our favorite part is when we get a chance to interact with you guys. I used to say in the very beginning when we started this almost 10 years ago, and, um, you know, I would say I'm basically at that point, we had this little studio that was uh, a converted closet, literally. And, uh, and I would say other, if, if you guys like, don't talk back to me, then it feels like I'm a woman in a closet talking to a little tiny camera and it feels crazy feels full on crazy. So uh, it helps me when you are here with me and then I feel less crazy. We are no longer in a little closet. We are now in my home uh, because of COVID, but, uh, and we've also moved studios since then. And we have a slightly bigger closet. It's significantly, we could probably fit five or six closets in there now. Uh, it's still small, but <laughs> it's no longer a closet. Uh, so we kind of love that. Anyway, we're here. We love being here with you. And we got a big show planned for you. You know, on Friday, talk autism with Shannon and Nancy. Instead of jargon, we go, good morning, Nasser. Uh, see how that works? Uh, when it's Friday, we usually go over some news that we cherry pick from the week. Um, you know, depending on the time of year, there's more autism news than other times of the year. We try to give you a balance of sort of everything that's happening. And every once in a while we touch on research, although less and less because we have our research folks who join us and we're gonna have Leah Hirschfeld do some research for us in just a second. But I couldn't pass this one up. Uh, by the way, before I forget, if you wanna interact and you're not watching us live, we are on all major, every place you get your podcast, that's where we are, at least the ones where you can get it for free. 
We're on iTunes, Ghana, Apple Music, Google Music, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Deezer, you know, whatever, whatever there is, we're there, free download. We also want to encourage you, I keep forgetting to say this, but um, this show is free and it's free for everyone. And I love that. And I want to keep providing it for you for free. And the and I want to get to as many people as we can with a message of hope. You know, we say we're always here to provide information and inspiration and to make, you know, like make sure that we all feel like we're connected. We are a big, big, huge community. Our show is for the entire autism community. Of course, individuals who are on the autism spectrum, they're the beating heart of our community, right? But here on Autism Live, we include that larger community, which is everyone who loves those individuals and is fighting for them to have the jobs, the research, the healthcare, the ability to love who they love, marry who they want to marry, work where they want to work. Yeah. Um, so that's all of us. And uh, what you can do to help us, we're not looking for your money. We, we're not asking you to open your pocketbook or your wallet. Uh, what we want you to do is share. Uh, share and like. And whatever platform you're on, like us, subscribe to us, share us, let other people know about us so that other people can find it. So if you like what you find here, share it. That's all we're asking for. Okay. So uh, in the news this week, I want to start with a research thing that's a little bit dense. I wish Nancy were here because I always love it when she's like, you know, Shannon, do you get this? And I would say, not really. Um, But here's what I do get. Uh, like many of you, I'm sure, just in the last year, I did the 23andMe, and it was so fascinating. And I, there are different levels of the 23andMe that you can do, and I decided to do this slightly. It was my birthday present, by the way. Uh, so I really want to know. I wanted to know, uh, like, who is related to me, but I also wanted to know the medical side of it about, like, what kinds of things might I genetically be more prone to. And we've reported before on the show that um, now, for the first time, I wasn't realizing how racially uh, based it was due to access. So for the first time, they've been able to get a large enough sample from people who have uh, genes that have emanated from Africa. And um, they're finding out much, much, much more about autism, y'all. And it's fascinating. Well, now there are there's a group of scientists who have found some more genetic information which uh seems to show that there is a mutation in the chromosomal region you ready for this 22q11.2 not going to crochet that on a pillow right um but apparently about 21% of the people with that um chromosomal uh region deletion have autism Um, and 41% of people who have that have an intellectual, uh, disability and 23% have schizophrenia. So we know that something is at play with that chromosomal deletion. And what they're saying is that they feel that with more testing, that they should be able to look at your, you know, your friends and me or other place where you do a chromosomal test and that as more people be able to do that, they will be able to predict your likelihood to um, have uh, end up having one of these diagnoses, which would mean um, that, you know, there would be interventions who would, that would be put in place earlier. 
Um, but it would also mean that you might be more likely to pass that trait down. So they call it a polygenic score, and it sums up the number of common genetic variants associated with whatever it is that you're looking at. And there are other genes that are associated with, for instance, schizophrenia or autism or intellectual disability. And what it would do is rate and say, well, you have this gene, this gene, and this gene, so you are this many percentage more likely to have X, Y, or Z. And again, the whole purpose of that is to be able to treat, you know, to help look for, to red flag, to say we're going to be watching this individual to see if they you know, for a small child, if they end up uh, needing intervention, you know, for autism, we know what we can do to intervene, to help that individual to have, uh, if not completely lose the disabling aspects of it, to greatly diminish them. And the earlier we start, the better. We know that if someone um, is at a greater risk for an intellectual disability, that there are things that we can put in place earlier to help minimize that, Right. Um, and for schizophrenia, there are medical uh, choices that can be made to help that individual um, in different ways from a medicine standpoint. Of course, we hope to get there with autism as well. So uh, interesting at the very least, and we are seeing this being reported, um, excuse me while I scroll up to see, oh, this is Inspectrum News that we really, really love. Okay, um, so that's our sort of interesting story. And on the, sometimes we have heartbreaker stories. And let me just say, this one is quite the heartbreaker story. I believe we covered the, the beginnings of this story last year. And now a lawsuit has been filed. There's a young man on the, 16 year old on the spectrum who was profoundly affected by autism. Uh, his name was Eric Parsa. And I want you to imagine for a second, like in 2020, when you still could go to the mall and uh, that you and your family go to the mall because you want to try, like as a treat, you want to try out the, the tag, the laser tag that they have, right? And you go there and for whatever reason, your 16-year-old child has a sensory meltdown. And so what do you do? What do you do? You exit the building, you, uh, and, and part of what was happening, in the, he was there with his mom and his dad, and he began to hit himself in the face, and then as they were trying to calm him, he began to hit his dad. The manager of the store, who was familiar with the family, said to mom, what should I do? Should I call security? Mom said yes, and they exited the building, were outside that entrance to the mall, as the teenager was having, and you and I know what this looks like, right? Um, and we're familiar with it, but we have to acknowledge that other people, they see it and it's just like, they don't know what to do. But he was hitting himself and hitting his father. And the father was sort of wrestling with him, trying to gain control of the situation. And along came um, uh, one of the security people who was an off-duty cop who worked, they, I guess they contract with them for the mall, not entirely sure about all that, but this police officer person came and, um, you know, was attempting to help the dad, was attempting to help the dad and was trying to gain control of the situation. And using, he had wrestled the young man to the ground, face down, and then sat on him. 
Now, it's reported that both the young man on the spectrum and the cop were overweight. So he's sitting on him and mom is on the ground talking to her son. Dad is on the ground talking to their son, trying to calm him down. And he was hysterical. Um, and he was, the, the, the cop was on his back for an extended period of time, over eight minutes. And then, you know, we know this story, right? We've heard this story. And then another police officer came and spelled him and also sat on the kid. And everyone says, you know, the mistake that was made here was, you know, sometimes you have to gain control by getting on top of someone. But then once you've gained control, you know, you have the opportunity. I mean, as unthinkable as it is, I don't want to see any of our 16-year-olds handcuffed, right? But I would much rather see them handcuffed and sat up than to die because this young man died. The, the second cop who came up and spelled the first cop stayed on his back. And eventually the, the boy urinated himself and went limp. And only then did they get off of him and they called the paramedics. They were unable to revive him and he died. And, you know, we just can't have this anymore. Um, we just can't have this anymore. And the parents are suing. And the police department is saying really, I think, inappropriate things. Um, and saying that the parents are just looking to blame someone where there's no one to blame. I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. How dare you? How dare you? No. I'm in support of this family suing. Um, you have to train your people better. And you got to treat people with more dignity. And you got to stop acting like just because you have the badge that it's okay to do this. It just isn't. Now, listen, I, I, I support I, I have friends who are police officers. I understand what a difficult job it is, but somebody was not doing their job. And every expert agrees that the mistake made here was you have to put the person in a recovery situation. And, you know, there, I know, I can think of all the things that I want to go off and talk about here, but we have to start holding people accountable. Um, we, we can't allow this to happen. And this could have happened to any of us. And, and I know we've shared before on the show that the experts are saying, if you have a child with autism who's having a meltdown and somebody asks you if you want to call the police, say no. How horrible is that? But until they are properly trained and understand what they're dealing with, say no. It scares me because what could happen because we're not asking for help. I hope that... Uh, I really hope that help is on the way for this. It's a problem bigger than I know what to deal with. But um, I got to tell you, you know, it's the one thing I can say to you is we all need to be working together to help get the word out that a sensory meltdown from one of our kids with autism is not solved by asphyxiating them, by putting them on their stomach and getting on their backs. It just isn't.
All right, I'm sorry. Uh, horrifying, horrifying, right? Let's move on to a better story in the news that starts with something really negative. I think a lot of us have been, I certainly have been boycotting TikTok because of some of the memes that were on there in 2020 that were very inappropriate. I think TikTok is making an earnest attempt now to help repair their um the message that they are allowing to be spread about autism. And there's a great story in Teen Vogue this week uh, about creators who are on the spectrum, who are uh, promoting and being promoted on TikTok to provide a different narrative about autism. And so Teen Vogue has a great article um, featuring some artists that are on the autism spectrum that are having big following on um, TikTok, people like Chloe Hayden. Um, and I, uh, Paige Lale, Haiti Delone. Um, I think it's a really interesting thing to do. I want to encourage you to carefully uh, look at TikTok. I don't encourage you to invite your children, teens, and whoever to just be on TikTok, I think there's still the potential for some bullying to happen on TikTok that's, that might be more passive, but it's still bullying. But I wanna encourage you to look at this article, find some of these folks, uh, curate that content for yourself and for your family, take a look at some of these uh, people on TikTok and share them with your children and teens on the spectrum. I, I always, when I'm talking to other parents, one of the things that I'm really fond of talking about is that it's it's so important, it's essential to give really good role models for our kiddos on the spectrum. Um, and I know when my son was little, people will say to me, you know, how did you tell your son about autism? And I said, we decided everybody has different decision, right? About when and how and where, but whatever you do, make it positive. That's the one thing I ask you, make it positive because there's no reason not to, right? That's the best possible thing to do. And we felt that making it positive and showing role models on a regular basis and saying, oh, you know, uh, look at this individual and introducing them, you know, sometimes they're people on TV. So introducing them is, is not introducing them, right? It's just saying, oh, look at this person. Isn't he awesome? Isn't he cool? Um, and our first person was James Durbin. He was on American Idol. And so we would watch American Idol with our son and we would go, oh, you know, I really like James. Hey, you have the same name as him. Your name is James and his name is James. Isn't he cool? Doesn't like, he's this great rocker. He's absolutely fabulous. And uh, you know what else, James? He sings and you sing. You have that in common. Isn't that wonderful? Do you know what else James has? He has something called Tourette's syndrome. So sometimes he says things or he coughs or he burps, or whatever, and he doesn't really have control over it. But, you know, it doesn't stop him from singing. And, but, you know, sometimes he does that. Isn't that interesting? You know what else James has? James has autism, just like you. Isn't that funny? You have all those things in common. You don't have Tourette's. You have some things not in common. He plays the guitar. You don't yet. So we would talk about things in common, things not in common, but we'd go, isn't James fabulous? And, and so we, we, you know, we hoped that that would build his self-esteem of, you know, James is fabulous. I'm fabulous. Um, we both have autism and that's fabulous. There's absolutely nothing to hide, be embarrassed, be ashamed of. Right. Um, so here are these people on TikTok that you can follow and curate and uh, show to your child so that um, they have role models. There are all kinds of people now 
um, that are on the spectrum, that are out there about it, that are amazing and doing amazing things. And I really encourage you. Uh, there's even characters in movies and in, uh, in Marvel movies. And there's the, the one Power Ranger who's on the spectrum. So I encourage you to utilize those. Uh, I see that our guest is here and I don't want to take up too much more time, but those are our stories uh, for this week. It's always more fun when, when Nancy's here with us. But in any case, uh, we are welcoming back to the show Leah Hirschfeld and she is joining us to talk about research. Uh, Leah, take just a second and uh, tell us about what you do at CARD and, and how that involves research. Yeah, absolutely. Um so I am Leah. <laughs> I am a research coordinator here at CARD. Um, and what that means is I'm part of our research team and we spend our days trying to answer um, or think of ways to answer questions that we think will benefit everyone that we serve. Um, and we, our research team likes to think of themselves as a support team. Um, and we really think of everyone that we serve as not just our patients and not just our families, but also our clinicians, our supervisors and our behavior techs. Um, and even actually our insurance groups as well, because they're all involved in the care that we provide. Um, so I have a pretty cool job, um, if I say so myself, where I get to spend my day looking up articles, answering questions, um, interacting with participants, running them through an intervention, analyzing data, writing up that data analysis so that we can get it out to everyone um, so that we can really provide the best care that we can here at CARD with the best resources and the most thoughtfulness about the resources that we have. Um, so it's pretty neat if I say so myself. And then I get to come on here once a month. Yay! Um, That's great. Yeah. We love that. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't warn you, it's just me today, no Nancy, because she's on vacation, but I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. Remind me what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things that we try to do when we come on is um, I'm happy to always like talk about any topic, um, but I don't know as much as your audience about what they want to hear. So we try to take questions from our audience members um, and any topics. And I think this one was one of the topics was offered was um, racial and gender disparity in the ASD diagnosis. So that's what I'm here to talk about today. Um, I know it's a kind of sensitive topic. Uh, and I'll also point out, you know, we're two white women talking about it. Well, I'm going to assume you're white, Shannon. I'm not, I don't know exactly. Yes, but. I, am con I am considered Caucasian. Yes. Thank cool. you. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's two white women talking about this, um, but we're going to try or I'll try. My, and I know Shannon. So actually I'll say we <laughs> uh, we will try our best to be uh, thoughtful and sensitive about the topic. But I'm really excited about the research I have to show. Thank you. And I'm so glad that you're going to be talking about it. It is timely. So what have you got for us? Yeah, so there's this really cool article, and I'll also say, you know, I try to come on the show and, and present um, research that is pretty new, um, so something that came out like this year or 2020, um, and so this article came out last year in 2020, which is weird to say, um, <laughs> um, and it's by Cantor and his colleagues at the University of Seattle, and it was looking at um, microaggressions in racially charged patient-provider interactions. Um, and I'll say, you know, I'll, I'll tie this into ABA clinicians. This paper, though, specifically was with medical doctors. Um, and so it was with medical students and first or second year doctors, um, which actually the, the paper states as a limitation. They're, these are only our um, early career medical practitioners that they're looking at. Um, but it's a really interesting article. And before I launch into it, actually, I'll also throw in that it's an open access article. 
And so what that means is with research, you publish in a journal, um, and that's kind of what that means, like peer reviewed is that another peer reviewed it, another scientist reviewed it, and that goes in the um, journal. So that's like a great hallmark that this is a good, well-reviewed paper, um, but you usually have to have a subscription to those journals. So not all research is free and open to everyone. However, <laughs> this paper is. So that's what open access means. It means that usually the researchers paid an extra fee or something like that to make sure that everyone had access to this. And that's super exciting and important because it's a really great article. Um, and it's a really important article that, you know, as a caregiver, um, it, you can download it and just provide it to your, your doctor, to your ABA clinician, to your IEP folks, anyone you want, um, without any concerns about copyright and things like that. So um, with all those caveats, let me explain what the research is. Um, so what this group did was they took their um, medical providers and they put them in two groups. So they either had a workshop intervention um, where they went through a training that I'll explain in a second, or there was no training. They had a workshop where they didn't do anything, um, which is really good to see in a paper because it means that they can actually look at the intervention and say, okay, this group did the intervention, this group didn't, and what differences do we have? Um, not all papers do that. Some are limited and can't and don't have the ability to do that, but this one did, which was awesome. Um, and so what they did was they trained folks on mindfulness, um, so paying attention in a thoughtful way on the present moment and non-judgmentally, and then they also encouraged contact. And what they said was contact was a close and trusting relationship that was formed from two people having a lovely conversation um, where one person engages in a vulnerable self-disclosure and the other person is responsive in a, in a thoughtful way, uh, understanding and validating and caring. Um, and to some extent, you know, because these are medical professionals with patients, one group is already in a vulnerable self-disclosure kind of off the bat, right? Um, so this was really working on the medical folks um, engaging in responsiveness, understanding, validating, and caring. Um, and so what they had was they had a, uh, folks do, patients and, and providers do a pre-workshop um, intake, do the workshop, and then do a post, and they compared. Um, at post being after. Um, and then they compared. Um, and what they did was they had the providers do a self-report. So when they say, you know, I felt much less biased and things like that. Um, and they also had folks score the interactions. Um, and the really cool thing about the folks who were scoring is that they didn't know if the interactions they were viewing, if those people had gone through the training or not. Um, were, and this these is were impartial third-party people scoring them. Exactly. Okay. Um, and, and it's really important that it was impartial, that they didn't know that one group had gone through the training or not, because um, subconsciously and unconsciously, people sometimes mm, score things differently knowing that they went through the training. It's not anyone's sure. fault. It just kind of happens naturally. Um, so it's really great that, that, that these folks didn't know. Um, and so what they found was that when the re when the folks had gone through this training, which was mindfulness and just being thoughtful and caring and responsive, um, that the scores were better, um, that they, there was more emotional rapport and more responsiveness, less microaggressions um, when, when the folks went through the training. Um, and that the folks who went through the training also self-reported that they felt much better prepared and um, less biased when they had interactions with 
um, folks of, of color or and non-white folks. Um, I'll pause here and then I'll kind of connect this to how it relates to all the medical care, uh, all the ABA stuff that I want to talk about as well. Okay. Cool. Oh. <laughs> um, and and I also I'll throw in um you know one of the things I try to do when I come on to is kind of digest research so that you know if you download this paper you can read it yourself and feel comfortable. Um, and one of the things I want to point out is to always look at the limitations in a paper. Um, researchers do a really thoughtful and, and should do a really thoughtful and good job writing out everything that could have been better about their study because no one's perfect. Um, and where you find this in a paper, you know, you get your introduction, that'll give you all the background information you should need to know to understand what's gonna come next in the paper. Then you get your methods. That's gonna explain everything the researchers did. This is super important because it means that a paper should be replicable. Someone should take this information, repeat it, and as long as the research is valid and good, get the same results, right? So that's your methods. Results, gonna be some nitty gritty numbers and statistics. And then in your discussion, that's where the researchers are gonna say, this is why this is so important. This is why we're so excited about it. P.S. these are our limitations and why this needs to be better. And these are our strengths and why we're so excited about it. But it, it's all there to really talk about, you know, what went well and what didn't. So always look at the limitations. The researchers were really thoughtful about saying, we didn't have enough people, which is what this, this article said, um, that they're younger professionals, you know, or not younger, but newer professionals in the, in the, in the field. Um, and one of the interesting things too they note is that this was only short-term gains. So they did a pre-intervention, went through the intervention, and then almost immediately after they an analyzed another interaction with the patient, um, but they didn't look at six months later, 12 months later, 18 months okay. later. So we don't know that this lasts for the rest of the career, but we do know this is short-term gains and that's awesome still. Um, and so where I tie this in for ABA is. Um, well, can I ask this before you get there, before you get there, what did they find? Did they find that if they were given mindfulness, that they were, they, they, they did uh, show empathy and they, they help these people on a, on a deeper level than if they didn't, regardless of race? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what they found. They found that um, participants scored better on emotional rapport and responsiveness and had less microaggressions. Exactly. And so I'm assuming the flip is true that if they didn't get this training, that they noted microaggressions, that they noticed things that were missed, they mm -hmm. and that it and that it seemed to be tied to race. Is that accurate? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. That makes yeah. me want to throw up. If you look at the paper, um, it it is super sad, um, and and it's sad, and also something that I think has been. Um, better documented recently. Um, but yeah, if you look at it, they, they had all um, their, their participants who were patients were um, black folks who came in and they were actually black actors. So this was at the teaching hospital. And the reason that they did it as actors was to make sure that the interactions were the interactions that the researchers wanted to look at. And the interactions, the, the scenarios between patient and um, practitioner were really supposed to be negative um, and not negative, but ones that that challenge um, stereotypes and inter interactions. So ones that um, might trigger someone into thinking that someone was looking for drugs rather than actual pain treatment, right? Or or something like that. So they were really thoughtful about that. And if you download the um, 
article and look at some of the comments that were stated between practitioner and um, patient, they are very sad. Um, and there's some lovely ones too, that some people went through the training and had lovely interaction with, I'm so sorry, this is super crummy. Um, but there are also some sad ones, um, which really are eye-opening to the experience of um, non-white patients, unfortunately. Okay, yeah. so, um, so now let's relate this to ADA and, and, and the world of, of just having a child who's on the autism spectrum and trying to get any kind of treatment for them, whether it's get, you know, um, uh, get them looked at. Um, I, I can recall when, when my son had the flu and we went to the emergency room and a kid in his class went, we went to the emergency room on the same day, treated by the same people, but they did not disclose that the child had a diagnosis of autism and they treated that child entirely different than our child. I, and now, you know, I just want to say that I think that there are a lot of us, I'm, I'm a 58 year old white woman. And it's not that I don't think that there is prejudice in the world and, and that I don't think that there are microaggressions, but I think that like a lot of people I have blinders on and I, and I, it's that failure to take other people's perspective um, because I assume that people mean well and and um, have love in their heart, you know, for everyone. That is my assumption. And and the last, you know, five years has been a re-education of me and other people where we have to like smell the coffee and and realize that there's a much bigger problem and be in support of folks who have been telling us their whole lives that there's stuff going on. It's just horrible. It's just horrible. Um, but in any case, um, so talk to us about in, in the world of autism and ABA, um, is this happening? Yeah, um, it, it is happening. Um, and it, it's pretty well documented that, um, well, so I'll start at like the bigger level here, right? So several racial groups, Black, American Indian, Hispanic, uh, Latinx, are underrepresented as BCBAs and BCBADs, which are the PhD BCBAs. Um, and so th what that means is that it is likely that a non-white patient, that a non-white child with autism will have a white clinician. Um, I think this is important to kind of note, right, because it means that you're coming at this with very different perspectives and assumptions. Um, and to your point, you know, it's always important that everyone kind of, I think everyone does come, not everyone, but I think there is a, a lot of folks who are in this field who come with love and support and want to be the best they can for folks. Um, but I also think there's a lot of assumptions being made. Um, and so one of the recommendations is, you know, have a really honest, open communication. And to the point of this paper that talked about contact, you're one person's vulnerable. The other person does need to be caring and thoughtful in their response. Otherwise, it can it can backfire. It can be really negative. Um, but if you're open and honest and that other person also wants to be open and honest, you can have that important conversation with your clinician and really point out, you know, hey, that's not that's not what we do in my culture. That's not how you might make that assumption because we're all Americans, but that's not what's important here. What's important to me is actually this value or something like that. Um, and explaining, you know, that that difference is really important or also explaining, you know, that um, you've had a negative experience with the clinician um, being a, a non-white individual and what that was for you. Right. And and really, you hope the clinician um, is responsive in a positive way um, and doesn't just say, well, 
that's your fault because you're this color or something like that, which like, God forbid. Um, and, and everyone really should be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for telling me. Like that's really, it, it's a lot to be vulnerable there. But I think that's the beginning of that conversation and discourse to try to bridge that gap here as we know that there's a lot more white clinicians who will be serving non-white um, patients, unfortunately. Um, we also know that white children are more likely to receive an ASD diagnosis compared to Latino and black children. Um, we also know black families are more likely to report that the child's healthcare needs are not stable. Um, and I think that's all again, where you can come bring this paper that we just talked about um, and it's open access again. So you can download it right now, this Cantor and Colleagues um, 2020 from University of Seattle and say, you know, this is important. You need to listen to me. Like this is being brushed off because I'm not white and this is really important. Um, is this Cantor with a C or with a K? With a K, thank you. That's a great question. Um, Cantor, K-A-N-T-E-R, um, 2020, download it, take it to your doctors, take it to your clinicians and just ask them to read it. It's eye-opening um, and it's not, I love that it's it the, the intervention they did, the treatment they did was thoughtful and present and non-judgmental and empathetic. Everyone can do that. Everyone needs to be more thoughtful about that. So it's not like anyone needs to go through a totally different reality and and change it. it it's just that you need to be thoughtful and really present in the moment when you're talking to someone um, and really engage them empathetic, empathetically, you know, as if they're like a friend um, would. Um, so we also know Latino and Black families report lower quality of care. Um, Latino families actually look, uh, report the lowest quality of care, even though they have similar socioeconomic disadvantages to Black families. Um, not 100% sure why. It might be immigration, language differences. On the language front, we know that non-English speaking families also report a lower quality of care. Um, and we also know that Latino and Black families of a child with autism are more likely than white families of a child with autism to report that their child, their, their doctor doesn't listen. So again, taking this paper and really being open and honest about your experiences with your clinician. Clinicians, please be respectful. Um, I know everyone is trying, um, but it's even more than just, okay, it's it's you saying, wow, that's that's really terrible. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I will try my best to be thoughtful. Tell me about your values. Tell me what's important to you culturally. Um, and really be thoughtful about it. Um, I have some other ideas as well, but I'll take a break to jump in. Yeah, I mean, I really, I wanna hear your ideas because as you've been sitting and talking about this, I just have been saying, oh, you know, I, I, I am always at a loss about, I don't, I don't know what to do. This is not okay for me. When I think, always, when I think about what it's like for other caregivers, I know how hard it was for me. And I always say when I'm speaking and I can't imagine, you know, I'm, I'm a white woman who was raised with the idea that I could talk to anyone and that I could complain to anyone. And I could say, this isn't right, that I was empowered and, and felt that I was empowered to, you know, argue. And I did. And it was so hard. It was like climbing Mount Everest for me. So I always say, what is it like for someone who doesn't have all that, you know, the, the feeling that you have the privilege to be able to do that or not having uh, the citizenship papers or not having the command of language, you know? I mean, like all of those things, it, it bothers the heck out of me. Um, but I, 
you know, and I hear you say, you know, well, we should take this paper into our doctors. And I was thinking we all should. We shouldn't wait. We should not wait until there is a problem. And we should not assume that someone who is having the problem should be the person to take the paper. Um, but I feel that it's that there there's got to be more that can be done. And obviously, my head turns to what can we do here at Autism Live um, to encourage this. I, I know um, that at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, all of the clinicians have been going through a mindfulness training, um, and I'm and I'm thrilled to hear that. Um, I think that that's remarkable. But I'm sure that there's something. I feel like. There has to be more, and it can't just be a few people doing it. We've all got to do our, our a part of the heavy lifting here. So give me some ideas of what we all can do, and in particular, I'm going to be listening for what I can do. Absolutely. Um, and I think I, I, there's so much there that you just said that I, I'm so excited that you said. I think um, I'll, I'll hit the easy one. CARD is, is doing some really cool stuff. They're doing the compassion training. Um, they're doing cultural competencies. So there is you know, and we're the largest provider of ABA. So there is change going on here. It might be slow, but it's go- it's coming and it's already there. Um, so that's super exciting. I think to your point, right, as someone who is privileged, who is, is someone who has always been said, you can talk to whoever, you can advocate whoever, there won't be any backlash to you because you're white. It's super important to, to partner with folks who aren't like, who don't look like us here, right? And to say, you know, how can I support you? What can I do? And I think it's true too at your centers, at your doctor's office to jump in as well when you see anything or, or and, and at any point and just say, you know, I support whatever's going on, whatever's going on with the patient here. Like I support them. I'm here for them. Please listen to them. Please, you know, be an active participant, be an active partner. Um, and I think it's super important what you just said, right? That like everyone goes into their doctor's office with this article. It's not just folks who are non-white. It's the white folks who to, who have to go in and say, you know, I read this article and I thought it was super interesting, really eye-opening, especially because I'm not that type of person. Like I, I don't look like that. So I haven't had those experiences necessarily in the same way, but the paper does a great job um, really giving experiences, giving voice to those experiences, which is nothing compared to actually having those experiences and, and describing them, but it's something, right? So I think, you know, you, as an, as a non, as a white person, we need to be thoughtful and, and advocate as well in a way that, that still gives voice to, to the folks who actually need their voices heard and not so much for us. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think it's, you know, I, I, I don't know that I've told this story on the, the show before, but um, I guess it's like almost three years ago now I, I'd been going to the same cardiologist for a number of years and had the same nurse for a number of years. And, you know, she seemed like a perfectly lovely person and was always kind to me. And uh, one day I went in um, and I was very nervous because I was going to be talking with the cardiologist about a very specific thing that makes me nervous, a procedure that I might have to have done. And so I was a little preoccupied and this, and she came in and she was taking my vitals and I don't know how, but in the course of taking my vitals, she began to talk and say the most horrible racist things I have ever heard in my entire life. And I was paralyzed. 
I was paralyzed and I was like, what on earth do I do? I like, I, it was so shocking to me and, and I didn't know what to do. And I, I literally shut down. I mean, because that's me from past things in my life. I completely, it was like, mm, shut down. Um, I did say a couple of things to her. I won't go into, um, so that she would stop. Um, but I, but then the doctor came in and I was like, do I report her to the doctor? What do I do? Do I go ask for the office manager? What do I do? And I didn't know. So I left and called my husband and cried in the car and said, I don't know what to do. I ended up, it's, it's an office that has multiple offices. I called the office manager of all the offices and put in a report and a written, written report. And, and, and I just want to say, I felt so much better for having reported it, but I, I still feel horrible that in the moment I, like I should have screamed fire or something and then had everybody come in and said, this woman is saying racist things and you have to fire her right now. Because I feel like the more time between when I complained, it didn't end well is what I'm getting to is that they eventually sat her down and talked to her and then came back and reported to me. And I said, you like, I figured they wouldn't, but they came back and reported. They didn't fire her. And, and they even admitted to me that she said some inappropriate things in the discussion that they had and they didn't fire her. And I left that cardiologist over it and said, I'm not coming back there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I have the ability to go find another cardiologist. And I kept thinking, what if you didn't? What if you didn't? And, and it's still, you know, I guess I'm just admitting how helpless I felt in the moment. And it was very eye-opening to me because, first of all, I never heard anything like that in my life. I didn't know it existed. And I, like, I'd heard about it, but not heard some, I'd heard, you know, like, like people talking about it as, as like something in a movie. I'd never heard it before. I, like, it was so shocking and eye-opening to me. And it still bugs the crap out of me. I, I and I feel not empowered. Me, I feel not empowered. So I cannot imagine if. And all I kept thinking about was wh- how had she been treating people in that office for years? If that's what's in her head and in her heart, it sickens me. Um, and if it sickens me, what must it feel for the person that it's aimed at? Right. For heaven's sake. So anyway, I know I've taken this to another place, but um, they're wanting to know again, the name of it is Cantor and what? Uh, so it's Cantor at all, like, and colleagues, because there's at like all. eight people okay. on this. Um, I'm trying to make sure I have the name so I can send it over. Um, it's called- I think a- I can send it now. Okay, cool. Um, if you do Cantor, K-A-N-T-E-R, 2020 microaggressions, this will probably pop up because the whole title is, is Addressing Microracially Charged Patient Provider Interactions. It's very long. But microaggressions, canter with a K, A N T E R, 2020 will probably get you this open access article. Um, if it doesn't, I'm going to try this private chat function on here. I haven't tried it so, before. I sent that over. There um, we go. Um, uh, there you, we, uh, you got it in the private chat, uh, Trayvon, if you can take that and stick that in the public chat. Um, but but the, the point that I was making is it's hard to stand up and complain and it doesn't always work. 
and it isn't always lovely. Um, so it's hard to have the guts. And sometimes it's not even like having the guts. It's knowing what to do in the moment. We can start with this paper and we can say that everyone should be on board with sharing this paper with their healthcare providers. But if you're feeling funny about it, if it feels awkward, if it feels just imagine how it would feel if something were actually happening. Um, you know, because I can't even imagine how much more awkward that is. That's why I went off on that tangent. What else can we do though, besides that? Well, and I think, I think your point is really valid, right? Um, we run into these experiences and again, as a white person, we run into these experiences and they're terrible and I can't even imagine what this is like for anyone who's not as privileged as we are. Um, but I think it's worth also mentioning, you know, after those or before those interactions, thinking about how you would go about if God forbid you have this interaction, right? Like if you have if you have something in your head where you're like, if I encounter a microaggression, if I encounter a macroaggression where someone's just blatantly racist, um, if I encounter um, one of these interactions as a white person, what can I do and what can I say, right? And what will my action be? It might be like you said. Um, to not frequent that place anymore if they're gonna unless they're gonna fire that individual um, it, it might be something else I'm not sure um, but thinking about what you can say if you see these interactions I think prepares us as much as it can which is quite small um, but prepares to as, again as much as we can if and when those situations occur to say you know what I know what I'm gonna say and really be be brave like it's not fair that this is only on the the folks who actually have those interactions. It's also on us to say, you know, that's not okay. And until you, this is made better, I'm not coming here. This is inappropriate. Um, and it's scary for us to have to say it. And I can't even imagine how terrifying it is for for anyone who doesn't look like us. Um, and it's, it's terrible. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, rehearsing, preparing, thinking a little bit about what you would do in that situation, just spend five minutes thinking about it might um might make it a little easier if if it's even even easier um if and when that happens yeah unfortunately um mm -hmm. uh, yes very unfortunately but i also folks that are you know there is a board the the bcba who is supposed yeah. to be responsive to ethical concerns about treatment that anyone who is a bcba is supposed to be governed by that board I would assume, but I don't know, that um, if you had a complaint that you felt that you were not being treated with fairly or that there was a microaggression or anything, that you could level a complaint with the BCAB. Um, could you not? Yes, I, I believe so. I honestly, I, that's that I don't know, uh, to be completely honest, but I'm sure I have to, I have to imagine absolutely. Um, there's also certainly... Um, other avenues too at, at at least card if you have something like that with your supervisor you can always talk to your office manager um, they might be able to give you additional resources as well um, to be you know to confront that kind of situation but I think definitely like the BCBA board I'm sure um, because we have ethical guidelines BCBAs have ethical guidelines and and it's certainly to provide fair and equitable treatment to everyone regardless of anything um, yeah absolutely so one of our viewers, and forgive me if I say you've got a beautiful name, and I don't know if you pronounce it uh, Aisha, 
It's beautiful. I would love to know how to pronounce it. But she says, Shannon, I'm Cuban. And I think I am sure no one has to be discriminated, neither for his or her ethnic nor culture or religion. Everyone has to be treated with respect more if you are receiving a treatment in a clinic or a hospital. And I believe I have seen some people doing these terrible things. And I also have reported, and she gave a website there.believe.me. Um, and I, so I will definitely check that out. I do think it is, it is all of our responsibility. And, um, and I like the idea of rehearsing something in case you see something that is not okay. You know, I, listen, if it had been happening, if there had been anybody else in the room that, well, this is how I'm good at, if, if I see anybody doing something to anybody else, it's like trigger and I'm, I'm like verbal and I'm there. But if somebody is saying something and it's just me, whew, shut down. Eventually I did say something, um, you know, so that she would stop. But, um, but man, I, you know, I had such a hard time for days afterwards because I, I, I said, what was it that she looked at me and thought I would think that was okay? Right. Like, what was it about? Was it the way I was dressed? Is it my haircut? Like, what did she look at me and think I would agree with her and think that that was okay? Man, that just leveled me, leveled me. Um, but I want to make sure that I'm living my life so that I'm clear that I loved the other day. I, I was watching when uh, President Biden was swearing in his new um, uh, appointees and he's, you know, and he said a lot of wonderful things. They, they don't show on the news the whole thing, but he said a lot of wonderful things about, I believe that you folks are called to be here. You're about to work harder than you've ever worked. I want to stop for a second and thank your families because there are going to be times when we're going to ask you to put in long hours and they're going to suffer because of it. But if you, if you, if your heart is in the right place, you're going to do amazing things that are going to help people. But, but then he stopped and he said, but here's the bottom line. Everyone has to be dealt with fairly and with dignity. And if I ever hear you ever talking to anyone, a coworker, anyone, and not doing it with dignity, I don't care. I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to talk to you about it. I will fire you on the spot. We're not doing this. So just know. And I was like, woo! I mean, I think that's how it should always be, right? Um, wherever you are, uh, not just in the white house, but I was happy to hear him say that, um, because that's how it should be. Uh, and I do want to say that I think that there are a lot of ABA providers. There's been a big push in the last two years, um, that this is being talked about at every single level. Um, I think there's a big push to encourage more people um, of all different uh, races and religious backgrounds to get the training that they need to be to be clinicians for autism, but that there is also a big push for this mindfulness training of which mm -hmm. you speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think I think it's it's exciting that this is happening. I think it's a little I wish it happened earlier. Um, yeah, it's a little, you know, it's a day late and a dollar short, but we got to move in that direction. Absolutely. Um, and, and I'll throw in too, you know, speaking more about what folks can do, um, again, unfortunately, if you're in the situation, if you have some kind of rehearsal, 
I think that helps. I don't know if it will. I think these are just crummy, crummy interactions. Um, but anything we can do to prepare ourselves, unfortunately, um, I think gives us a better chance of success uh, to see a world that we want to, to see reflected. Um, but I think also as a um, caregiver talking to a clinician, you know, um, I think there's sometimes assumptions about cultural preferences and things. Please be vocal about those cultural preferences, about your preferences in general. So, you know, I understand that this might be really important, um, but for me and my family, this is what's important. Um, and especially, you know, on, if there is a cultural background for why that's important, that's so great to share with your clinician. Um, I think too, uh, and it's something we're trying at CARD also to, to talk to clinicians to not do closed-ended questions, to have open-ended questions saying, well, what do you, like, what do you think, why, et cetera. Um, but if a clinician asks you a yes or no question that you're like, man, I wish you had given me more room, take the room, offer what what else, right? If they're like, oh, is sleep intervention important? And that's a yes or no or something. And you're like, yes, but you also need to know this about us, that that we stay up later, that you know it is important, but actually this is really important for me. Whatever it is, um, you know, add more information there um, and follow up on questions or topics that you don't think your clinician has addressed or hasn't addressed sufficiently for you. If you're like, we talked, um, but you know, I, I don't feel like we've talked about it enough. I need to bring it up again. Um, and this is why, this is my cultural background about why um, you know, bedtime is super important or bedtime isn't as important for us because X, Y, or Z, whatever it might be. Um, so really be, you know, it, it's a partnership um, and everyone is unfortunately learning still. Um, I wish that wasn't the case, but you know, be vocal with your clinician, and 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 if you feel comfortable, provide those experiences. And clinicians, please be thoughtful and respectful. Treat everyone with dignity, and and as if you know, if if you had heard this story from anyone else, what response would you want to give them? Right? That I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for telling me about that. I wish that wasn't the experience. How can I make that not your experience anymore? And open-ended questions that will provide a partnership and a, and a conversation there. Um, and advocate. Everyone needs to advocate, not just folks who are non-white. It's just as important, if not more important, that white folks also do it um, and 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 fix fix the system. Yeah, and and I love what you were saying about make sure that all of us are talking with our clinicians about what our preferences are in our home, whether they're religious, whether they're mm -hmm. ethnic, whether I mean I um, I know we have a lot of families who will talk to us about the fact that um, perhaps they are um, their their uh, ethnicity is Middle Eastern and that they have different rules around being at the table. And some folks, you know, sit on the floor to eat and use different utensils to eat. And these are really important things to not feel squeamish about saying to your provider, you know, these are these are our um, preferences. This is how we live our lives. I will tell you for us, um, it was there was a very hotly debated topic at the time. Um, but it was very important to us that in our son's ABA training that he know about uh, same-sex marriages, and that that, that be very normalized, um, because we had many friends, have many friends, that, you know, his friends had two dads or had two moms, and we wanted to make sure that that was a part of the training. And the first therapist that was teaching him something about rela relationships and was teaching about marriage 
and and he uh, they were asking something about well who's married here and he was like well these two guys <laughs> and the, and the therapist you know and he was young and the ther- I, I saw the therapist was like bah, bah, bah. and so we brought it up we were like hey we need for that to be a part of this mm-hmm. um, that's super important to our family um, that that be a part of this and we loved that card was like got it you know tick in a box we're with you on this there was no discussion about it we didn't have to defend it it wasn't well, we, you know, we might have a thing. No, 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 no. It was, this is your preference. This is what we'll be teaching. So um, I, and that was important to us. Um, and everybody has things that they need to be sharing. We're unfortunately out of time, but Leah, if they have, want, have questions and they want to know, because you've got a bunch of different topics um, that we gave you for the next couple of months, but we're always taking more. So uh, should they write to me or to you? Who should they write to if they have questions? Totally anyone they want. Honestly, um, I'm sending over this email as well to maybe put it on the, saw that before the banner. Um, Shannon, if they have your email, send it to you if that's the easiest thing. Um, you, I know you always forward it over. There's also research at centerforautism.com. Um, that also, that's a direct line. There you go. Research at centerforautism.com. That's a direct line to me, our our research director, Karen, um, and some other team members. Um, so any which way it'll t- get to us. Um, and please, 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 yeah, send us any questions, any issues you run into, any anything we can provide research on, ask us. Any research questions we can answer, ask us. Because um, we we love it, um, and it's it's what we're here for, right? So. We want to be partners, and and we are. We feel we feel like we're partners. Hopefully, everyone else does. Um, but we we want to be partners, and and so if we know what questions are important, um, we will make sure and take the time to um, thoughtfully address them and provide the research that that's available. So, okay. And if you feel, I just feel the need to say this before we go. If you feel that you have been discriminated against from by someone in the field of ABA, and you don't feel like you can raise a flag or a banner do me a favor, reach out to us. We'll send them this article. We're happy to do that and not disclose who you are. But if you know somebody who needs to have that heart article and you don't feel like you can send it to them, uh, let me know and we'll, we'll do that. Uh, I can do that. So um, anyway, we're out of time, Leah. Thank you so much for this topic. Obviously, there's so much more to talk about, but we really, really appreciate you talking about this. She will be back next month. In fact, we've got it scheduled regularly now that she's here on the third Friday of every month. Uh, She or someone from the team, because sometimes it can't be you, sometimes it's Karen Nolte. Um, So we will look forward to that. All right, you guys, we'll be back next Monday. And we have Bonnie Yates back on Monday. Until then, give your kiddos a hug for me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for watching Autism Live. If you found anything helpful in this video, please give us a like. In fact, make sure that you smash that subscribe button on YouTube and give us a like on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram for important updates. And please download our free podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. See you next time.